You're listening to Visions of Education. A podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. What's going on, Dan? Oh, you know, just a uh, typical Wednesday, keeping pretty busy. How about you? Pretty much the same. Hey, I've been thinking about the public perception of teacher, like what people think that, you know, teachers actually do. Does that ever keep you up at night? You know, it probably keeps me up more nights than is healthy. Um, I, I think teaching is such a it's a profession that takes a lot out of you. You know, you have to put, you put your heart and soul into it and it can be draining. And I just think a lot of people don't understand it. And, uh, I don't think movies help. Um, mm. you know, I know everyone wants us to be, uh, like Mr. Keating in never actually teach an English lesson, but get all the praise as the greatest teacher of all time or, uh, and get them to stand up on their desks, which is probably not safe. <laughs> probably not safe at all. Maybe could, would constitute negligence. The the other thing I think is interesting because it's not just teacher movies, which, yeah, they actually do make me really sad a lot. We, I know we've <laughs> talked about this before. Mm-hmm. But the fact that everyone everyone believes that they know what teachers do because yeah. they've had them. Yeah. So they have this experience with teachers. And so that's what's built in their mind, what is teaching. But they've only seen one aspect of it, which is, you know, right in front of the class back whenever they were kids. But the profession has changed, and also there's that whole thing that happens behind the scenes that we never really – like, I don't tell my students, you know, what I do. Yeah, like, I, I think going to school, we feel like we all know it, like you said, but uh, a lot of the discussions about how to improve teaching, which, by the way, it's always fixed teaching, which is always frustrating to me, as if the entirety of teaching and education is broken and no one's learning anymore – um, which no, I don't, which I don't feel like that was the case in my classroom. I'm sure you don't in your own. And uh, so I just think it's uh, it's really hard because it's so complex for people to understand it. And so um, the simple stories about problems in education, I think, get a lot more attention sometimes. So I don't know. I feel like they're easier to grasp. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So luckily, we have an expert who can tell us a little bit about education reporting today. And so we would like to welcome to the podcast, Ben Felder. Welcome, Ben. How are you doing, guys? Good, good. Can you tell us just a little bit about uh, kind of your background in education and, and how that led you to becoming an education reporter? Uh, yeah. So I think, um, you know, I actually at one point... Um, thought I would be a teacher. Um, my undergrad wasn't in education or in journalism. Um, I actually studied theology um, in Nashville. Um, but when I was uh, living in Kansas City, I returned to Kansas City where I grew up. Um, I was working for a newspaper, but was really just kind of uh, just compelled toward to, to, to study more about education. I didn't know if I wanted to be a teacher necessarily or not, um, but I was really interested in urban education and some of the uh, social and economic dynamics that influence uh, urban public schools. And so I actually started a master's in education program in Kansas City at Rockhurst University. And after getting through the program for a little bit, the paper I was working at offered me a promotion in which I wasn't going to be able to do both the both the job and, and study and 
complete my master's. And so I thought, you know, the idea of teaching in a classroom still uh, kind of terrified me, <laughs> to be honest. And um, <laughs> even though I really enjoyed the program, and I thought, well, I've got this opportunity. I'm really passionate about journalism as well. Um, I think my best avenue and towards towards contributing to education may be to report on it and write about it. So that was kind of a crossroads for me, and I chose the uh, the writing and observing. So I guess if the uh, title saying is those who can't teach, which I don't necessarily buy, but those who really can't, uh, write about it. So that's <laughs> the path that I went down. <laughs> this, the phrase should be changed to those who get offered a better job in a career they're also passionate about can't teach. True. Same crappy pay. So, uh, I mean, so really, it really just came down to passions and comfort level. No, 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 nothing else. Nothing associated with salary. So. Well, we're glad you're also passionate about low-paying professions uh, <laughs> with a lot of hard work involved. <laughs> yeah. Hey, that's, where else would you rather be, right? <laughs> um, so can you tell us a, a little bit about how you got into education reporting, um, specifically just uh, I mean, what are what does it consist of and what types of, of um, things do you have to do to start to understand a lot of large issues in education? Yeah, well, like a lot of young journalists, you know, you kind of make your way up through smaller papers, sometimes in smaller, smaller communities. Um, and in a lot of those small towns and communities, I mean, the schools are kind of the heart and soul of that town. And so if you want to do good reporting about the community, it starts with the schools. And sometimes it's as simple as just kind of you know, covering simple school events or, or different things like that. Maybe you get involved in the politics with school boards. Um, I think for a lot of young reporters, sometimes their introduction into into elections and politics is through school board elections and you have school bond issues. Um, so for me, that's kind of how I got introduced into reporting about school. Um, but uh, several years ago, when I was working here in Oklahoma City, specifically at the Oklahoma Gazette, which was which is an all, all weekly here in town. Um, you know, I was really an urban affairs reporter, so I was covering a variety of issues related to urban culture, and schools were at the heart of that. So if you want to cover issues of poverty in the city, the local schools are, are a big, big part of that. If, if you want to, you know, cover the economics, the community building, placemaking, I mean, just, you know, politics on a local level, I mean, schools were just always at the center of it. And I guess, you know, as someone who's just kind of passionate about uh, urban affairs and city life. Um, I always found that the best way to understand a community was to be inside of its schools. Um, my kid is in pre-K right now, and so he goes to an Oklahoma City public school, and uh, it's about four or five blocks away from the house, and I, I walk him there most days. And I'll tell you what, when you stand in the lobby of an elementary school, um, you know you get a good picture of what that community is like. I mean, based on, you know, the parents that are coming in that are wearing uniforms for the jobs they're about to go off to, uh, the interactions you, you see between parents and kids. I mean, the tired look sometimes on the parents and kids. I mean, you, you get, if you want to know what Oklahoma City is like, go into um, one of its public schools and stand in the lobby uh, during morning drop-off. Tell us a little bit more about the school your your son, is it your son goes to? Yeah, my son. Yeah, a five-year-old son. His name is Satchel. It's named after uh, Satchel Paige, the great Negro League baseball player from Kansas City. Um, he yeah, he started uh, pre-K this year. Um, he goes to a school called Putnam Heights. It's, it's in the Oklahoma City School District. It's kind of in the north-central part of town. Um, and, uh, yeah, my wife and I, we bought the house a couple of years ago. Uh, we knew we wanted to be in the city, um, and we knew our kid was going to go to public schools. So we, we kind of paid attention to the decision we made based on the schools. 
Um, I want to say that the school, you know, we've like a lot of states, we have the A through F grade here. And I want to say that when we, we found the house that we liked, uh, the, the local school was, uh, I think it was like a D. It wasn't, it wasn't great. But um, as someone who's done a lot of reporting on that, um, that didn't really mean much to me. And so before we really made the decision to buy the house, I uh, actually took some time to walk into the school, talk to the principal, uh, kind of get a vibe, uh, you know, for, for what the culture and the climate was. Um, something that I actually don't see, and I don't mean this to like pat myself on the back, I'm just saying as somebody who talks to a lot of parents who are concerned about education in local schools, you really don't see a lot of that kind of an investigation from parents about, you know, what's the quality of the school. Sometimes they're using just kind of these general labels. Um, and went in and loved it. I mean, this was a, it's a, it's a racially and economically mixed school, uh, which we wanted for our kid, actually. Um, but we also found, you know, really passionate teachers, a, a principal that had a vision for what she wanted to see the school. And uh, he loves it. And we love it. I like that you tackled that as a reporter would try to gather evidence and in, in, in ultimately making your decision, which was different than the decision that you might have made if you just went off those those ranking. So you yeah. want to get more than the story, you know? Yeah, you know, I and I, you know, I, I'm trying to remember back my first visit with the principal. I think I probably had to remind her a few times that I wasn't there as a reporter. I was there as a parent, which I don't know is better or worse. Um, and even now, as I talk to teachers and 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 administrators in the school district. Uh, sometimes I, I constantly have to take off my reporter's hat and put on my parents' hat. Um, and sometimes that kind of changes the kind of response that you'll get. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I just, you know, I, we want, I wanted to walk inside the school and as somebody who, like I said, I, I, you know, I like a lot of education reporters, I'm used to, you know, those yearly report cards and rankings come out and everybody focuses on, uh, what are considered to be the lowest performing schools. And part of the job is to go out there and, you know, actually walk inside the school and see what it's about. And I'll tell you that, that there are schools have challenges. I don't, I don't mean to, to paint a different picture. I mean, you walk into some schools and, and the challenges they face are, are very evident. Um, but I've never once walked into a school, especially an elementary school, where I thought, man, this is a bad school. We've always, I, I walk in and I'm, you know, even schools that aren't performing well, I continue to be blown away by the passion and dedication of most of the teachers. I mean, these are elementary kids that, you know, um, you know, even those that come from tough backgrounds and tough communities are still a joy to be around. Um, and really, so really as a reporter, you kind of are faced with that, uh, you know, that kind of truth that, you know, this school has a label of being a bad school and you walk in, it doesn't seem like a bad school. So it really requires a lot more research and due diligence to figure out, okay, so what do we have going on here? What are the challenges that are going on? Um, and, and what is this school all about beyond just the, the label that a state or a school district might give it? Ben, it's really uh, refreshing to hear you take that kind of nuanced perspective of, you know, how school quality can be understood and measured, because I think that systems like A through F and these school rankings, which are so closely aligned with socioeconomic status um, and tend to have built in advantages towards schools that are wealthier um, yeah. and more segregated oftentimes, uh, along socioeconomic lines and hurt those, those, those have nots on the other end. Um, as, as Marx might say, I guess. Right. Um, but how do you convey that in reporting? Like, is that a challenge of education reporting? Because then those A through F narratives, this is a bad school and you can see by these numbers. Um, and so the teachers must be failing. The kids must be failing. The parents must be failing. Um, those simple, how do you get past those simplistic narratives and, and, and dig into like the, the nuanced stories that people need to hear to understand how to address the problems in schools, but also how to recognize, um, which problems are manufactured. 
Yeah, no, it's a great question. Well, I mean, as an investigative reporter, I mean, or, or any type of reporter, I mean, I think you're always after context for an issue. Um, I mean, if, if doing our job was sim as simple as just publishing the list of report cards, then, I mean, that would be a pretty easy day when those lists come out. Um, you know, I mean, I've, I've tackled the, com the, the challenge of A through F, and I'm not unique in this. Lots of other reporters and outlets have done this, too. I, several months ago, we actually took the last A through F report card and, um, you know, I, I thought the story was good, but I thought the best part about it was just the, the vi visualization, the chart we used, which we just um, used a dot, a dot chart to really show where every school in the state and a combination of what its letter grade was and what its poverty level was. And, I mean, without an exception, you can, you know, you saw the, the movement of this chart based solely on the economic level of, of the kids that are going to these schools. And, you know... I, I could probably make a lot of money if I played a game where I could where I could win, if I could guess the letter grade a school would get simply by you know just telling me what their their free and reduced lunch rate is. Um, that's a pretty easy game to play. Um, so I think you you got to find the you you got to tell that story first. I mean I think you got to you got to continue to remind people about the challenges that schools face. You know when I talk to when I talk to people sometimes I say. You know, if you ask the question, what's wrong with schools, like how do we fix education, you're going to get answers about, you know, testing and funding and teacher quality and education policy and state regulations, which is why I think that's sometimes not the best question. If you ask the question, what is preventing a student from a low-income neighborhood from having academic success, the answers from people are going to be, well, uh, you know, poverty, but all the things that are attached to that. So, so maybe hunger or, or home-based trauma. Um, you know, a, a maybe a lack of, you know, parent stability or parents that are working. I mean, they're going to talk about all these a aspects to the child's life and they could probably go on and on and it's going to take them a while before they even mention anything that happens inside of a school. And so I don't want to downplay the, the role that a school plays. That's obviously not what I mean by that. But when you kind of reframe the question, uh, I think people begin to realize that what impacts a child's education goes far beyond the walls of school. That doesn't mean that we 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 don't address challenges and issues and, and problems that might exist in the classroom or inside the school culture. But I think that's one way you go about it. The second thing I would say is, as an education reporter, if if you're if you're talking about education, the front lines of education happen are are the school, the classroom. So, and who are the players in the classroom? You have a, you have the teachers and the and the students. So they're the main uh, subjects. Of, when, of education. Beyond that, you have the parents. You know, they're obviously involved in an important part, but they're not in the classroom every day. Beyond that, a little further, you have the principal, then you have uh, maybe administrators, school board members, the superintendent. Well, where does the bulk of education reporting happen when you actually look at the quotes that, uh, that most people use in a story? It happens on the fringes. It happens with the superintendent. It happens with the school board member. It happens with the state lawmakers. And that's understandable to an extent because these are the people that were de that's the, the system is designed to talk to. Reporters can't always just show up at a school and walk into a classroom. So part of that is just a structure, you know, just the nature of the beast. But for me, if I write a story about education and I look at who I talk to and what perspectives I got, if I didn't, if I didn't spend the bulk of my time or at least some of my time on the front lines, I feel like then I'm not painting the clearest picture about what's going on to the reader. I mean, and I'm not saying I'm always successful in all my stories, but if, if I really want to dive into an issue of education, I better be talking to teachers. I better be talking to parents. I better be talking to students. I mean, so often in education reporting and in education policy, the student voice is non-existent. Mm -hmm. They're just kind of, you know, 
being pulled from one end to the other, and they're used as pawns. And I mean that both in the realm of government and in journalism. And so really for me, to tell those kind of contextualized stories, you got to spend time inside the classroom. you got to spend time in the community, too. I mean, I've written stories about education issues where I never stepped, well, not that I never stepped foot in a classroom, but where, you know, I didn't really write about what was going on in the classroom. I wrote about what was going on at home. And I've, I've had editors say, not here at the Oklahoma, but in previous gigs where, you know, I wrote a story about education and the person say, well, this isn't a story about schools. This is a story about poverty or this is a story about you know, childhood trauma. I'm like, well, no, it is a story about education. And, and it's, it's just a different way of looking at it. And what I would argue is, is a more uh, honest and realistic way of looking at it. Can you give us an example of how that you have told uh, one of these really complex stories with the multiple people involved, multiple perspectives? Yeah, uh, no, that's a good question. I, I gave that good case. And now I got to come up with it, <laughs> prove it. Um, well, you know, I think I think I'll come to a couple specific story examples, but I don't think I don't think it happens in just just one story. Um, I mean, I think you've got to continue. You kind of have to holistically tell tell that story. And sometimes I'll have readers that will that will write me an email and kind of complain about a story, uh, which I welcome. I mean, I love people interacting with the story and sharing your thoughts. Um, but a lot of times my response is like, well, here here are some other articles that I wrote on this issue that kind of give you the complexity of, of what's going on. Um, you know, I, I can think of a story. Well, let's talk about the story about the A through F and, and the poverty poverty level. Um, that would have been a very easy story to just tell by saying, okay, here are all the A schools and the poverty levels of those schools. Here are all the F schools and the poverty level of those schools. And I've I've made my case. I've argued my case that that income levels are closely tied to academic performance. Um, but for that story, it was important for me to actually spend some time in some of those low income, low poverty schools. On the flip side, it was also important for me for, for me to find a couple of the outliers. So some of these low uh, low income schools that were actually doing well or, or outperforming um, their fellow schools that are kind of coming from this community. Talking, spending time not just talking to the principal and the teachers about what it is they're doing well, um, but also talking to to the parents. Um, you know, if you're going to talk about an F school, you can't just report that it's an F or you can't just report the numbers. I mean, you got to ask a kid, like, what does it mean to go to an F school for you? And what is it, what, what is that, what does that look like for you? And when I've asked that question to kids, I mean, it's heartbreaking because they say, well, that, you know, we're a failing school. We're failing kids. I mean, what else could it mean? That's what they, that's what they think of it. Uh, you know, talking to parents, what does it mean to go to an F school? Talking to teachers. I mean, uh, one thing that I'm trying to kind of take a closer look at is this idea that, uh, you know, an F rating doesn't just hurt the perspective that teachers or that parents and kids have their school, it, it impacts the perception that teachers have and where they want to go teach and, and how valuable they think that they are and, um, and how motivated they are uh, to do their job. And so, like I said, I mean, a lot of education centers around data, um, but you got to go beyond the numbers. You got to, you got to pull in those voices. Absolutely. I think um, in our episode 26, we talked a lot about uh, equity and resources in schools um, with Nate Bowling, who's a teacher in a high poverty school in Washington, and he really provided some great insights. And one thing he said was that if you're a teacher, every single indicator is screaming at you to get out of high poverty schools and go to a suburban school. And I guess I can just kind of say from the flip side of that, I taught at Westmore High School, which is a pretty well-off school for five years. And it was really easy. Um, hmm. Not that like I put in tons of hours, like I put in way too many hours than I should have. I should have gone home 
earlier in the nights and stuff. And I love my job and put on it, but there was almost no pressure. My students did incredible on tests and I, you know, I worked hard towards that, but it wasn't the chat. We didn't have some of the challenges that other schools have. And also we just had the resources we needed um, across the board. And so for me to go switch and teach in Oklahoma city an Oklahoma city public school, um, for example, that uh, is facing some, some challenges. Um, and of course, uh, there's going to be a lot of good things going for it too, but those things just don't add up um, to the, I guess, rewards and messages you get from society who will likely, no matter how well you teach that year, still label you and your students failing at the end of it. Yeah, no, no, you're, you're exactly right. And those, I mean, those messages are, are received. We, we actually just uh, today or this week uh, posted a story. We did a, uh, we did some polling amongst teachers uh, this summer, we pulled the voter registration list um, and then cross-checked it against the certified teacher list in Oklahoma. And we thought, well, hey, we have a list of all these teachers. Let's ask them questions about the election. And we've got a couple election-centric issues on the ballot this year. Um, but we also asked them issues of, you know, just like, how well do you think you're respected by the community? What was interesting is overwhelmingly the teachers in the survey said that they felt respected by their students. They felt respected by parents. For the most part, they felt respected by administrators. Um, they felt deep respect, disrespect from lawmakers and just the community as a whole. Um, and that's, I mean, I don't know. That's that's a that's a challenging idea for me because I think I think a lot of us grow up with, for the most part, positive impressions of our of our teachers. Um, I mean, maybe some of us have had bad experiences, and I've had a bad experience or two. But for the most part. Um, you know, this was kind of a noble profession growing up, or these were, in, you know, important people in our lives. And it's interesting how we've kind of gotten to this place. And it's not just new. I mean, it's been going on for, for, for a long time. Um, but you're right. Those messages are hard to tune out. And, um, it, and it, takes a, it takes a toll. And it's not easy to just change, uh, change how you perform or change how you act as a teacher. I, I'm thinking of a moment when I was in a school a few months ago where the, the principal was meeting with teachers and telling them that they no longer had to teach to the test, that the district wasn't going to use the end of the instruction exams, end of the year exams to, um, to rate their teachers uh, or to, uh, to judge their teachers and their evaluations and also weren't going to use them uh, to, to make other standards and accountability measures. Well, anyways, he, this principal told the, te told the teacher, he's like, you know, you no longer have to worry about the test that you've been so, so concerned with. And she kind of laughed. Like, she's like, oh, yeah, right. That'd be nice. And he's like, no, I'm telling you, you don't have to use the test in your teaching anymore. You can focus on, on holistically teaching your kids. He had to say that like five or six times. In fact, a couple other teachers were like, no, I think he's telling you right now that you actually don't have to do that, that you can totally change the way that you're teaching. And she paused for, for a few seconds, and then all of a sudden this smile came over her face, and she said, i got to go home and kind of re-fall in love with teaching and kind of reevaluate what my lesson plan is going to be tomorrow. Um, and that's not directly related to how, how a community views schools, but my point in telling that story is that you know teachers have, I think, become forced to believe and act a certain way, and it's, it's not an easy switch. It's, it's not an easy switch to, to all of a sudden feel like you've got more freedom or you've got more respect from the community. Absolutely. Uh, I recently did a study with um, several other people at the University of Oklahoma. We actually started it a while ago, but it really focused on the reform accountability culture in Oklahoma social with for Oklahoma social studies teachers. And we ended up leading off the paper with a quote 
um, that from a, a teacher who was a K3 teacher and she had 28 years experience. And when we asked her for her opinions on teaching in the profession and, and testing, her quote was, I'll try and help any way I can. It's been a while since I've been asked what I think. Hopefully I can find the right words. Wow. And, and we just found that to be um, very, uh, you know, um, representative of, of how a lot of teachers are kind of just marginalized within the system. And, and uh, speaking to your point you said earlier, I think I saw some polling at one point that indicated that over pretty overwhelmingly people are satisfied with the teachers that their kids have that they know and dissatisfied with teachers on some holistic level, some generic general level. Um, and so it just kind of shows the contradiction. And I think that that goes towards the narratives that kind of, you know, uh, control the education dialogue and which is why reporters are so important. So, um, yeah, but- well, oh, sorry, I was going to say, like, I mean, you're right about that. I mean, it's kind of like Congress, right? Everybody likes their congressman, but they don't like Congress as a whole. Right. And I think, you know, education is political. I mean, it's been that way probably since the very beginning. But when anything is political, um, your side is 100% right and the other side is 100% wrong. And when anything is political, everything is explained through rhetoric. And so um, I think it's really, I, you know, I, I think you're right. We have a, we have a, a, a pretty important task as, as journalists to kind of help push people past that rhetoric. And sometimes that rhetoric is valid and sometimes it's not. Um, but, you know, education, just like everything else in life, is not black and white. It's a lot more nuanced. Um, and I think we have to start kind of understanding the complexity of, the, of this issue um, and kind of moving beyond the, you know, political rhetoric of it. I'm, I'm not sure that's possible, but that's, that's the challenge we have. <laughs> Uh, ben, I follow you on Twitter, and so I know that recently um, you went to a conference. I don't know if it was just uh, uh, journalism, a conference for journalists, or if it was specifically to education with some sessions, but I was curious if you could speak a little bit to some of the dialogue uh, and important issues that education reporters are addressing in the field. Yeah, well, so as the, the conference you're talking about is uh, the Education Writers Association, um, which is an organization that kind of assists uh, education writers across the country, um, really great group. Um, they put on this conference in Chicago to take a specific look at the new ESSA uh, federal education standards that replaced uh, No Child Left Behind last year. And so um, this gave reporters a chance to come and hear from policy experts, school officials, and school leaders to kind of get a better understanding of what the new federal guidelines toward education are going to look like. And so a, a real quick introduction to that um, is so No Child Left Behind replaced uh, last December with ESSA. And uh, basically what the federal government said is after um, years of being strict and telling states what they had to do, we're going to give states a little bit more leeway in determining what their standards and accountability systems and what their goals should look like. Now, the feds will still have to approve those plans, but right now states across the country are coming up with their own plans. So Oklahoma is doing that now. Uh, their, their first draft uh, is going to come out later this month and is supposed to be adopted before the 2017 school year. Um, I think what's really interesting about that, especially in a state like Oklahoma, is for, for a long time we've had lawmakers in this conservative state, uh, right, rightly or wrongly, demand that the federal government get out of our way. Well, now the federal government's kind of giving us a little bit more room uh, to work on our own, and so the question will be, do we take advantage of this as a state? Um, what's really interesting to me, talking to other education reporters from across the country, is a lot of states right now are kind of seeing a little bit of a, a rebound economically. Um, a lot of states that are have were slow to recover from the recession 
um, are starting to see uh, state revenues increase. And so there's a lot of conversations around around the country and states about like, you know, what do we do with maybe this growth and funding and how does it relate to education funding? And I don't mean to say that schools are now flush with cash. That's not the case at all. I just mean to say that that's a conversation happening in a lot of states. It's not happening in states like Oklahoma and a few um, energy dependent states. So we're kind of the reverse right now. We weathered the recession storm fairly well for the most part. But, and now we're kind of, um, you know, going through our downturn as, as the oil prices go down. Um, but I think a lot of education reporters are also talking about how do we, um, how do we explain the complexity of schools? I mean, all, all states now are going to have to develop some kind of accountability rating system. And for most states, that looks like an A through F report card. Now, what ESSA tries to do is tell states you cannot base that solely on testing. So you have to use a variety of other factors, and you have to come up with your own factor to include. Um, now, that could be school climate. That could be, uh, you know, a survey among students about, you know, how well they like their school. I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of an open-ended factor. But states are, are going to have to label their schools, but they're going to have to go beyond just testing. Testing will still be a major part of that, but they're going to have to find other factors. And so I think the, the burden on reporters right now is going to, explain, uh, you know, what does that accountability system look like? And then continuing to explain what are the challenges that certain schools face and, um, you know, in receiving those high marks, those high, high grade levels. Ben, as we kind of finish up, um, what, what advice would you have, do you have for educators and even the public about, you know, consuming reporting on education or potentially influencing it, um, how to use it? What, what could you tell others? Well, I mean, I think, and I mentioned this earlier, but like I said, I think it's important for education reporting to include the voices of students and parents and teachers. And so one piece of advice to those who are consuming news and information is to look for that. You know, is, is this story giving you the perspective of the most important client, which is the students and the parents and the families and sometimes the teachers? Um, you know, I think it's also important for people to, you know, get involved in their schools. And that can mean a variety of things. I mean, if it means volunteering, great. But if it means just stopping by and, you know, stepping foot in your school, um, you know, conversing with a teacher or a principal, I think people have this idea that schools are kind of these private, closed-off places. And to some extent, they can be. But there may be a little bit more opening than people think. Um, and, uh, and even for people who don't have kids, I mean, just taking the time to, you know, look up a little bit of information about your local school, just to get a better perspective of, okay, who are, who are the kids and the families that live in my neighborhood? Uh, what is the local school like? Um, even if you don't have kids, I mean, the local school is, is impacting you in, in some ways, um, whether it's on your property values or, or just the general quality of life in, in your community. Um, but like I said, education right now is very political. And just like with any political reporting, um, you know, I'm not going to tell you there's some big mass media conspiracy right now. But I think, I think readers of journalism should always keep an open mind, you know, glean facts, um, you know, try to consume different sources as much as you can. Um, and, you know, really kind of add that up together to kind of uh, get, get a more complete picture. Um, you know, with teachers, I think it's, you know, the one thing that's really interesting to me about teaching is it seems like a really isolating profession. I mean, teachers are stuck in the classroom all day, and even though they're surrounded by kids, sometimes they're not really surrounded by other adults that much. And it's a tying profession, and it goes well beyond the end of the school day. Um, but in my conversations with teachers, um, 
I've always found that there's a challenge in getting teachers to become more, you know, not just politically active, but uh, just maybe socially active in different issues and causes. And it's hard. And I mean, you're, you're tired at the end of the day, you're stuck in that classroom. Um, you know, sometimes it's not easy to, you know, look at the comment section at the end of an article, you don't want to get beat up. But I, I think one thing that we're seeing in Oklahoma right now is a lot, a lot of teachers that are beginning to engage more in that conversation. Some of them are actually campaigning for certain candidates and issues that they find important. Um, but I talked to some teachers for a story recently that said, you know, I can't get out and campaign. I can't do any of that. But I can, I can contribute to the dialogue online in a, in a respectful and honest way and continue to share my perspective and to share my story. And so, um, you know, for me, I would just encourage teachers to just kind of continue to share their story um, because I think that's, that's a major, that's, that's an important part of, of, at least for me and my job in education reporting. Yeah, I agree. And uh, uh, for anyone interested in that topic, uh, episode 17, we we talked, um, uh, it was myself, uh, Jeff Carpenter and Tori Trust. We've done um, research on professional learning networks uh, that as a way for teachers to commune with others, because there's definitely a long history of teachers being somewhat isolated. And it's amazing how you can be around so many people and sometimes feel so alone. Um, it's really true when you get yeah. some, you get in that classroom and you've got every, everything's on that one teacher. And so um, it can definitely feel that way. So, well, th- thank you so much, Ben, for um, chatting with us today. Where can our listeners find you online and your work online? Uh, yeah, so uh, the Oklahoman's website, newsok.com. Um, and uh, I'm on the watchdog desk. I'm an investigative reporter with the do- watchdog desk. A, a major chunk of what I write about is education. Um, but um, I also cover uh, politics, uh, urban affairs, kind of social trends and data for the paper. But newsok.com. Um, I'm on, on Twitter at Ben Felder underscore OKC um, and try to stay pretty active there. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, those would be the two best places. Um, thank you so much again for joining us. And we definitely hope to continue the discussion online. Everybody can send Ben some tweets when they're curious about education, but also retweet a lot of his stories where he's putting in a lot of that good work and check out what he's been doing. Um, also on the Visions of Education podcast, we are all about sharing the learning. So you can tweet us at Visions of Ed if you're doing something creative in education. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe to Visions of Education on iTunes and Stitcher. And this is where Michael would usually chime in, but he actually had to leave a couple minutes ago for a dinner party, leaving me quite lonely here, but um, that's okay. I can take care of his lines too. Um, Michael would have said, if you write us a five-star review, that we will read it on the air, and we're looking forward to some more of them. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka, and you can find Michael. He's at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast, signing off.